just because you draw something once doesn't mean you got it out of your system or narratively figured that thing out. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gilesembrano. Together we speak to people around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been a leading innovator and manufacturer of printmaking products for over 50 years. Speedball's speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print, no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mesh screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emulsions or coat a screen. All you need is your design and you're ready to print. Pick up the speed screens kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials you need to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Emmett Merrill, artist in the upcoming Print Santa Fe 5x5 exhibition. For more information on Print Santa Fe, check out the link in the show notes. Emmett and I talk about how he grew up just down the street from the Lawrence Lithography Workshop, working as an intern at Tom Huck's Evil Prints, and learning about the art world proper before heading off to graduate school, building a print shop in the middle of the pandemic, and the beauty and the terror of the American landscape. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to read the signs with Emmett Merrill. Hi, Emmett. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm really good. I'm really good. I'm really excited to talk to you because I, I've actually known your work and had you on my list of people I wanted to reach out to for quite some time. And then you got selected in the 5 by 5 for Prince Santa Fe. And so this worked out perfectly. I get to fulfill my wish of chatting with you, and you get your work in a cool exhibition. It's a good day. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited to be part of it, and I'm stoked to be in the first round of Prince Santa Fe. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah totally. Totally, totally. So before we get into the questions, would you please introduce yourself and say who you are, where you are, what you do? Uh, my name is Emmett Merrill. I'm an artist printmaker currently based in St. Louis, Missouri, and I run the litho portion of Graphic House in downtown St. Louis. Wonderful. And so where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? Oh my God. I was so spoiled. I'm from Kansas City on the Missouri side, and both of my parents were artists when I was a kid. Oh, and wonderful. Dad was actually a printmaker, and so I've always been around it. And when I was in high school, we actually moved into his studio, which was in the basement of this warehouse on a dead-end street, and it was sandwiched by an abandoned Bible college on the right, and then the Lawrence Lithography Workshop on the left in the Belger Crane Yard building. So I diagnosed from birth, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh so was your dad a lithographer then no he, he did intaglio and community work and drawings and everything but uh lawrence litho was next door and it was really cool because they would have openings every so often and michael sims still runs it 
but he was putting out work by artists like Elizabeth Layton, Luis Jimenez, Tom Huck, and Roger Shimomura. So they were all of these super narrative artists that were making artwork that had really dark themes, but had all these bright colors. And I was seeing that from an early age and would have all of the postcards that they produced for those shows hanging up in my little like bedroom that was behind this like sheet in my dad's studio. It was cool. Those artists all had their own. The, the work was all narrative and interesting, but the artists themselves were super, had these mythological stories about them. Like Luis Jimenez, like famously sculpture artist and painter, illustrator, lithographer, and was famously crushed by his sculpture he made for the Denver yeah. airport, um, tragically. And then Elizabeth Layton, who only got into artwork at the age of like 70, and then made her way into the MoMA within three years of doing blind contour drawings. And then, of course, Tom Huck. And his whole life is a weird story. <laughs> and yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the artists and narrative were just as interesting. Their biographies were just as cool as, like, their narratives, you know? So I think that was what got me really interested in Litho from, like, a young age, I guess. Yeah, that's an incredible story to have that introduction, as you say, written in the stars or in your blood from the beginning, because so many artists that I talk to they don't even know what printmaking is even until college usually. And they are falling into some printmaking course because it had an opening or something like that. But it's really, yeah, it was there for you all along. I got to see some of Jimenez's lithographs at the Anderson Museum in Roswell, New Mexico recently. He did the Roswell residency several times, I think, and just they're incredible. And they had some of his sculpture as well, but that's a really special thing to be exposed to early on for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's crazy that he did so much stuff too. Sorry, you know, um, I don't know. It's almost like with some artists, it's like, where do you get the time to get that good at <laughs> all these things it takes long enough to get good at like one method of printmaking let alone sculpture and like painting you know yeah yeah that's incredible so what about your mother was she a printmaker at all no she was actually a photographer and went to the kansas city art institute and then worked for years for ku med and ran a the magazine there and so was photographing and traveling around the world to photograph surgeries in different countries and different parts of the United States. And then she and her partner years ago started their own business where they're teaching photojournalism to retired hobbyists. She'll go and well, she'll travel to Bhutan. She has two different trips in India. She goes through Morocco and she's going to Japan, I think, the next few months. And she brings this full group of people and they bring their cameras and she basically shows them how to interact with people and photograph people and landscapes. And they travel to all these places that are off the beaten path for tourism. And so has all these amazing experiences and pictures when she gets back and she helps them make them all into these books and calendar or books and like catalogs and prints and puts on shows for them and the money will go back into a lot of times the communities that they'll visit there. Like in Bhutan, they had a show in Kansas city and everything that's sold there went to build, I think, um, a dam or a well in Bhutan and at village they would go and visit. 
That's so, so cool. I want to go travel with your mom and take photos. That sounds really great. <laughs> awesome. I've done it a few times and it's crazy and it's cool to watch her work. And because you're not just talking and photographing people, you're also like managing this entire group of people. And it's awesome to watch her do it. It's masterful almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that element in there, of course, of putting the money back into that community really adds that layer of morality to the experience, right? Because I think one of the criticisms, rightly so, that photojournalism can get is profiting off of the life and the experience of others with only taking involved. I've seen your life and I've documented it and now I won $10,000 or something like that. So that's wonderful that she's... um, adding that element of, of understanding how to do this in an upright way. Absolutely. I think that's what it should be for, you know, giving back. I remember like we used to photograph people or go around and do these sort of street studios in Kansas city. And like you would hold up a piece of foam core or one person would hold a piece of foam core and somebody else would talk to people and be like, Hey, can I take your picture? And you'd have these like sort of street studio portraits of people. And then months would pass and you'd get on like the bus or something and you'd see somebody that you photographed who has no idea who you are anymore now. And it's like seeing a celebrity almost, or you feel like you took something from them, but not in a bad way because you talked to them and they were like, yeah, you can take my picture. It's for an art show or something. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. People in your own city, I guess. Yeah. And then, so for your journey with printmaking, you had it in your life growing up. At what point, did you know that lithography was going to be your path? You talked about this experience with the the Lawrence Lithography Studio, but was there a moment where you were like, this really will be it. This isn't just something I admire. This isn't just something that inspires me. I'm going to dedicate myself to this craft for my life or the foreseeable future. Well, I, I think it took a while because I was so insecure with my drawings and I was doing woodcut for the longest time because you can hide I think drawing mistakes through the contrast and shadow that are inside of woodcuts and I wish that there was this cool moment where it was like yes that's it but it was really just I was in grad school at Knoxville and it was our grad seminar and Beauvais Lions practically forced me <laughs> and I did one and it was like there I did it can I not do them anymore I hated it I thought the drawing was bad and then he had me do a bigger stone and he gave me a deco color paint pen and was like, essentially, I think he was implying that like I could make a graphic image using litho. And so I did a quick line drawing that night in my studio and then brought it back the next day, drew the thing in 30 minutes, etched it, printed the first layer by the afternoon. And then I had been re- visiting Richard Peterson with my partner, Sam Mendoza in California. And he had introduced Sharpie Litho and Sharpie Flat, so you can print really quick color layers. And so I just went crazy on this quick pen and ink drawing, and I did on a stone, and then that hooked me. Treating it because at the time there was a lot of like ideas in print where it was like, I want to make this drawing, but I don't want it to be like a coloring book. Mm. And I was that was confusing because I was like, well, that's how I draw it's not very common <laughs> so I wanted to be like a coloring book so I think that was a really long convoluted like way to say Beauvais Lions 
forced me to do it. And then I got hooked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he is a, a proselytizer for the medium. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that if you ended up in a, in a grad seminar with him, that he'd make you put crayon to stone at some point. Yeah, absolutely. My friends make fun of me for it. They had a photographer come into the studio one day to advertise the program. And the sun is coming down through the windows in Knoxville. And there's this picture he took because Beauvais was like modeling for it or something. And he was like, Emmett, you need to stand in. And so there's this photo that's been publicized all over the place of Beauvais drawing on a stone and me standing over it. (laughs) And the sun is setting in the background and it looks like, yes, this is how you make a lithograph. (laughs) I like how this is like, oh, really? It's so dramatic. Yeah. Man. So anyway. you're you are in the the literature and the canon of lithography at Knoxville is what it sounds like from the photo then. Yeah. Yes, I feel like I'll be like humiliated by somebody's gonna put it in a calendar or something someday for UTK alum. I think I associate anyway that program is one of the top litho programs in the country for sure. And then you're moving forward with this lithography career. And what did your dad think about you following in his footsteps and becoming a printmaker? No, he loved it. And he, he always like had this joke about it being like, not, especially with being the parent of an like artist, not being overly supportive. Cause he was like, everyone gets the parent. That's like, everything they make is great. This is so good. You're a little genius. And so he would always be like, you're average. It's pretty good. <laughs> And with a smile on his face, you know? And so I think like once a year I'd come back and I'd show him my prints and he'd get really excited about it. And we'd catch up on the phone and sort of go back and forth about what we were doing and where we were showing. And yeah, so I don't think he was, I think he was pretty proud and pretty excited about the whole thing. And um, he got to see Graphic House about a year ago. And I, he's, he liked, he, he enjoyed talking a lot. And so like, I think seeing him get floored in a lot of ways was how I took it looking around and he had an Instagram that was rough for him to keep up with in a lot of ways but I think the only posts he did were of the bathroom because there's all this evil print stuff and he loves Tom Huck and was posting pictures of like Huck's artwork and Bill Fick that was all like paper mache across our bathroom and I thought that was really like cute and cool that he went to Graphic House, saw some of his favorite artists and posted pictures of their work that was hanging in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I think he was really excited about it and everything. That's lovely. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's a perfect segue to ask you to talk a little bit more about Graphic House. I've got definitely questions about your practice specifically, but now that we're kind of talking about this business in St. Louis that you're a part of, Tell me the story of Graphic House, because I know it's it's a bit of a winding road, I think. <laughs> oh, totally. Well, so when I finished grad or undergrad, I moved to St. Louis to be a press assistant intern for Tom Huck at Evil Prince. And I came along at the same time as my friend and partner, JT Felix. And I was there for about two or three years, and JT stayed longer. I went to graduate school, and JT stayed in St. Louis. And he got a print shop that he opened up right next door to Evil Prints called, and he called it Graphic House. And it was all screen print. And he built this great retail section where he was selling prints in the front. And I would come down and visit and help for a weekend. And but was really just like the equivalent of like holding a flashlight while like he's doing the actual work. 
but it opened up for a month after the grand opening before the pandemic hit. Oof. Yeah. And at the same time, I was I hung up my thesis show the day before everything shut down, and then it shut down, and I nobody saw it. And I took everything down and I put it in my car and drove right back to St. Louis, and we self isolated for a month or however long that time was. It's so hard to remember, but at some point, Huck called JT and I into Evil Prince, and I don't remember the nature of the exact conversation, but it really went down where he was essentially saying, I want to move Evil Prince out to my house, build up the Spider Hole studio behind his home and sort of get rid of the storefront public space. And he was like, if you combine Graphic House and take over the lease, they'll give it to you for the same deal, essentially. So we spent the next year and 2020 was a great time to make a pod with like three other people and build a print shop. And so we moved all of Hawk's stuff out, which was absurd and insane. The stuff that like you would just find and moved all this graphic house stuff in and built all these shelves and tables and flat files and moved a Griffin press from Kansas city all the way up. And God, that was insane. And anyway, and we had to, man, we had to tip it on its side. It was horrifying. It was like, we moved this Griffin press. We got it to St. Louis. We couldn't get it out of the U-Haul because but the U-Haul had to be returned in an hour. And Graphic House used to be right next door to this sports bar, barbecue place. And Jackson is walking by and he sees JT and I scratching our heads like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get this press out? And he's, I got an idea. I'll be right back. So he goes to the bar and he comes out and he's got like five red-faced, half-drunk, <laughs> none of them wearing a closed-toe shoe between them. <laughs> and they like crawl up. Oh God, it's horrible. I've got a video of it. And they all pick up this Griffin press from a different angle and they like lift and we all lift it up and we bring it out and you can see us all falter for a second. And they get it onto like essentially we're two skateboards, these like little cheap furniture dollies. And we wheeled it into the building. Somebody should have lost a digit. That was horrible. <laughs> and <laughs> we wheel it into the building and we get it there and it won't fit through our door. So we had to take the door frame off. JT has the circular saw and he cuts out a portion of the wall and we barely twist it in. It was man. And so, yeah, that's how we got the press in. So we get the press in. We have a litho press already in there, but not much of a stone library. And JT built this entire screen print setup. And we've just been keeping the water under our noses ever since. We've been doing workshops and we have a graphic Mondays. It's the last Monday of the month where we produce a work by a local artist, have a little opening for them. JT does some commercial work and design work and yeah, it just naturally came together. Yeah. And it is like, it's a very cool space now. I, I got to visit it a couple of months ago and it's wonderful. And I feel like that to just go across the street and get some day drinkers to help you move your press is sort of exactly what's needed to make it in the print world, I think. <laughs> like, you really just need to figure out how to get it done, hell or high water, budget or no budget. And so I think that's just such a wonderful story of 
how things actually work and how things actually get done in the art world that usually goes unseen. Totally. Cause I, I feel like it's almost like, it gets almost like spiritual in a way where like you run into something and mm-hmm. then somehow you get out of it or like somehow the rent gets paid. Like, or maybe it's just the kindness of strangers. Like we were trying to move, Huck had this giant meat locker that was an evil prince for forever. And he rented a truck and we move it out and it was so heavy. And there's this ramp and I've got a photo of Huck and um, our friend Andy was a part of Graphic House with their like hand arms on their fists or on, on their waist looking at this meat locker. Like, how are we going to get this into the truck? And two guys who were just like, I think like working at the place next door and we're on their lunch break, walk up and they're like, do you need some help? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh yeah, we would love that. And they're like, get out of the way. And these two guys just push this thing up. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, I love that. And I, I know what you mean of feeling of that spirituality or almost kismet and coincidence and connection because it all sort of shakes down as it's supposed to against all odds a lot of the time. And I'm at a point in my life now where I'm building things and doing things or trying to manifest things in the world in some way and I really just try to listen to the rhythm of the universe because I'll just take on a project or get a harebrained scheme and I'll be like look if this is supposed to exist it will and then you'll see those doors opening and you'll see the kindly muscle on their lunch break who are willing just to help you will sort of appear to you and and if it doesn't then it's not meant to be and I think that that's in a way opposed to the deep and sort of toxic hustle culture of the United States Mm -hmm. that you just need to white knuckle everything through to the point where if you don't try hard enough, you failed because it's your fault and you're a failure. And it's just, it's so much easier to be at a point where you can just lax until the flow of what's happening yeah yeah and i think that like i think printmakers especially have a benefit though within that because i think that like when you see like a printer in need or people that want to do a favor or something i think they want to do it because they may not or people on the outside of it may not always understand what it is or how it's made but it it inherently looks cool and it's like Mm -hmm. brightly colored graphic and at least for us, it seems like we've gotten like free or next free, like electric work, uh, plumbing stuff, people that have helped out because they think what we're doing looks cool mm-hmm. and it looks mm-hmm. artwork or that kind of thing. And we haven't solicited that, you know, and I don't know. I think people want to help out something. I think especially artists, because I think they tend to admire what it is and how it looks, mm. you know, like. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would guess there's an element in there of wanting to see something like Graphic House in their community mm-hmm. and understanding that this is a net positive for the city, for this neighborhood, in a way that building another bank is not going to strike people the same way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, at least I hope so. There should be a print yeah. shop on the corner. Absolutely. I've heard that that Oaxaca 
city is like that. That's sort of the reason I want to go. People have said print shops are like Starbucks. And so I'm like, I am in. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I like the idea that you could be wandering around and just happen upon one and like, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. And so, so with the, your story, you were in undergrad and then you did the internship uh, print assistant with Tom Hawk and then grad school and then graphic house. Is that the, the timeline? Oh yeah. That's the, yeah. That's- season two through five. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious then if you could talk through, if you could talk through that experience of, of having worked in a professional studio with a high profile artist, someone who's doing collaborations with big museums, living in that world, and then going back to graduate school where you're kind of a student again, and, and you've seen one side of the art world and now you're in this other part of it. What was that like? And and would you recommend it? Would you recommend for undergraduates listening to this to go out and cut their teeth somewhere professionally before deciding to to move on? Yes, absolutely. I and I think mostly for the sake of like living in at least at least or I think the old school thing that Huck has set up with the internship or printernship or press assistant system that works is you are forced to go get a menial job with flexible hours so that you can just focus on your work. And while you're in the shop making your work, then all of a sudden a harebrained scheme or something huge happens. And then you put that down and then you're doing evil prints and Huck, we would call it like Huck stuff. And so I think it teaches a really good level of balance between work you have to do to survive your own art practice and work within the art world to sort of succeed because it's a really funny experience to go and do things like for example like we did new york print week which is probably one of my favorite evil prince trips and huck had traded some artwork for this big fedex van that we cleaned the side off and he traded a visiting artist gig in kcai in kansas city to use their vinyl cutter to put the logo and everything on the side we put a press in the back there's a lot of presses and trucks in this interview. Anyway. Yeah, it's the life. Yeah. <laughs> so we drive it across the country to a print week and we had a chase car and like driving a FedEx truck. I didn't drive it, thank God, but it's the size of a lane and driving a FedEx truck through New York when you're just like a 21 year old ex art student. It's a weird feeling. And I remember like a lot of phrases that would come up from like Huck or whatever would, you don't know. No. Anyway, you do that and be at this level of printmaking with like people in Chelsea and curators and people that are spending a lot of money on artwork. And then for us, it would be like, okay, we're broke in New York. We spent our rent money to get here. And now we have to find a way back to Newark because we couldn't afford an Airbnb in New York. And so we'd take a three hour subway, like ride and transfer, ride and transfer to get back to Newark, walk for 20 minutes and then go back to the Airbnb where we like shoved eight people together and just like sleep in your clothes and wake up the next day and do it again. And it, it's, it's, I think it gave a good side of the art world that made it really exciting to see these shows and then live like in the wings behind it like mm-hmm. on a play. And then you have all the people on the side that are hanging out and nobody knows that they're like running circles around to look normal on the outside. And then to go from that into graduate school was a little bit strange um, because any like research, I think especially like artistically was all visual and craft based. 
And then to be in a system where everything was about, or not everything, but a lot of it was readings and spending time at the library and doing research that wasn't visual. Mm. Uh, that was the biggest transition, at least for me. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense because in the, a lot of the day-to-day -day world of working artists, of exhibitions, of museums, of print week, of art fairs, it's so much this logistics and craft and really hands-on in a way that I think when people are in graduate school, it can be really heady and theoretical and a bit of the world of the mind. And then you go and work at a gallery, you go and work for an artist and it's, how are we going to get this 300 pound sculpture in the back of this truck when we're in a loading zone and that guy's yelling at us and someone stole our dolly and, but we can't scratch it because it's, I mean, that's like what it actually turns into. Well, meanwhile, you're in your head being like, okay, where's my boundary? When am I like afraid I'm going to kill myself doing something, you know, where I like put this put my foot down and, and, but it's part of what makes it interesting and exciting and, just different, just a job that is not nine to five in an office somewhere. Is it's all in that. And and yet, yeah, as you say, graduate school can be just a lot of library research. <laughs> which yeah, which is weird because it, it is like I think that within all of that chaos, it it directly throws something into the work to like uh work from. Because your sketchbooks start to reflect the things you're doing every day. Mm -hmm. which, especially working for a professional artist and a successful one at that, like a lot of the dialogue isn't, I think in Huck's case, like he's, he's making this really like making all this really smart work. That's smart visually, narratively, like critiquing the state of like our country at the time and all of that. But it's like, what do you talk about in the off time is like, we need to shit $2,000 tomorrow or we can't pay rent, you know? Yeah. It's like, that's what the conversation is about. So to go from that into like, but what does it mean to make a print? Yeah. <laughs> years into that and like scratch your head and be like, I don't know, make more than one of the draw, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like why, why does this piece have to be a print? You know, why isn't it a painting? You know, all those sorts of things, which I love that, that talk too. I, I, I love it for its own merits. So, oh, interesting. Well, and so in terms of your own work, in terms of what's kind of showing up in your sketchbook during this time and coming out and, and being produced in, in graduate school, you have a really developed aesthetic. You have a really strong look in the work that you do. Did that come through your experience in graduate school, that voice that really seems very present? Or did you go into graduate school knowing more or less what your artwork looks like? I I think I went into grad school thinking I knew what my artwork looked like. <laughs> <laughs> and was very like, I was such a shithead about it because I didn't want to change. And it was like the worst attitude for grad school. And I would have been worse two years before that. So I'm happy that like I took time, you know, but I think it changed for me because I always loved the look of like sketchbooks. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, that goes back to like just being around artists all the time. Because I think that when you see artists' sketchbooks, you can see a lot of personality and like just the way people think. And it's almost like scattered. And it was, it's like, it's like a tattoo flash sheet that isn't meant to be like good or for anyone to see. It's like you have these like several drawings and people in their sketchbooks always write what that drawing is, even though it's right. really, 
And I just love that sort of aesthetic, especially where it's like some things look finished, some things are crossed out. And all this, all of a sudden this weird poetry happens where somebody draws like, a, using JT's sketchbook, a bear wearing a, a cap, peeking its head through like a tent, mm-hmm. right like a gas can or like doodling like a tooth that's like shining two separate ideas that are forced to be one on this page and then so I was was really into all of that but I wasn't confident with my drawing and my friend Mary Climes I we were hanging out and she showed me this comic by Nick Dernasso it's called Beverly Mm -hmm. and he's a Chicago artist and illustrator he's won all these awards now but his drawings are really mathematical and simple. And in a way, they seem like they wouldn't be good, but except they really are. And I was, I took it home. I read it like that night and just seeing these really sad stories told through the lens of like really bright colors and really simple lines. I think it gave me the permission when I went and did that stone that I spent 30 minutes on. I went in and like drew it and was like, oh my God, this looks cool, even though the drawing isn't necessarily great. Mm. And that started this thing where like, it became less scary to go in and start making drawings um, that didn't feel like they had to be good to get the idea across or the narrative across. And now I love drawing and it's, I feel like, yeah, yeah. I don't know how to cap that thought. Yeah. Well, I, my, my question would be, as we've talked about the the journey a little bit for you, you've referred to a couple times about, not feeling like it's a great drawing or worrying about a drawing not being good. How do you define that? Like, what were you looking for in the drawing that at least at one point wasn't coming out? Mm-hmm. I think, I think the, like the, mis- the big mistake of it, it's in like things that looked overdrawn and then like a project. I wanted something that, that looked like this thing that I'd seen before that I really liked, but you can't quite pin down what that is until you mm-hmm. see it. And you're like, really awesome which I think is like happens in a lot of like test prints or sketchbook pages but I I don't know I think you're just doing something one day and like it's that like you know that like thing where you pull the print off and you could do a first color or something and it works and it's that wow factor and the ink Mm -hmm. is still fresh Mm -hmm. and you're like oh my god that's so good I guess just one day it started working for me and making sense and then it's like everything else I did after that I was like basing on the last thing I made and then it morphs its way up the ladder until it is like the 15th print instead of the first one in that style. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about the sketchbooks and how you've got these images that are placed next to each other. In a sketchbook, it's arbitrary, but I feel like in your compositions, they have such a really strong sense of iconography for me. Like it feels like a lot of what I'm seeing is supposed to be a symbol for something else, you know, is supposed to be an icon of some kind. And sometimes there are images that are put together in unexpected ways. And I'm wondering if that's the connection there, is that I, that the way you enjoy that feeling of a sketchbook, that your work, well, it doesn't feel like a sketchbook, it does have that a narrative quality of a collection of images that are telling you something altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, it's like, I like artwork that you can kind of live with. And the more you look around or you think, you know, the narrative based on the big picture. And then you see one little thing inside of it. That's this red herring mm-hmm. for what, the, 
And then it makes you think you're like, wait, 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 that can't be true because there's like a gas can here next to like a Mondrian painting on an easel that has an arrow through it. That's pointing at a ghost. It's like, well, what do these things mean <laughs> together? You know? Yeah. And I like, it's like, they all, they all have like meaning or something, but they're kind of like in letterpress. I think they're called dingbats or whatever, where you can like plug in these little pre-made images into like new compositions that just can throw off what the narrative seems like it's supposed to be. And then through that, it's like beat poetry or pre-association stuff where it's like, there is one larger idea, but it's not always just about that thing. Mm. Yeah. Something I've been curious about with your work, having seen it in, in person and seeing it in, in reproduction a fair amount, is finding that balance in your compositions that the viewer feels like there is a story to be unraveled. It gives enough, rewards the viewer enough that they return to it and feel like it's a puzzle they can solve mm -hmm. without making it so heavy-handed that you look at it and you're like, oh, this is about sex. This is about war. That's about, like, it's like, it doesn't, give away everything at least in, in my experience of viewing work it never gives away anything but it doesn't feel so disjointed and so random that it doesn't reward you yeah the effort of looking I hope that makes sense no I think it totally does because otherwise it's just like a bunch of random objects that are like unrelated but when you put them together I think you sort of force that narrative or force that relationship and I also think it's something where it's like thinking when people are making a composition, I think there's a lot of the idea of making things or making visually instead of narratively or like illustrating something where it make it makes compositional sense to have something right here. But then you have to like draw yourself back and be like, does that make narrative sense though for the entire thing? Mm. And then the following question is like, well, does that matter? And then as you kind of go through, I think then you sort of realize like what it's about. Like, and it, it, I think it's also worth it for like the joke or when you people ask what everything is because there is a meaning to everything at least in my work and you can point things out and sometimes it fits and sometimes it's just absurd like I did this one big litho in grad school and I was working on the drawing for it in the letterpress shop and my friend Ashley Mays came in and she was working on a project and she was telling me about how they she listened to a podcast about someone who figured out how to communicate with fish and somehow and I interpreted this as like, oh, like, so the fish can get interviewed on a podcast? That's so <laughs> like, you picture the stupid looking fish with a microphone on a like blanket doing a fish podcast. It's super small. And um, as I found out later when I was telling her about it, I think that podcast was not about interviewing fish. It was just about. So there's little things that could be also like day to day that may not make any sense with the larger thing, but it's like also the sketchbook where you can be working on this big thing over here that's all dramatic, but it has room for you to treat it like a journal or a sketchbook page or a record mm -hmm. of your life. Yeah. Well, and you also have sort of recurring key themes and recurring characters, if you want to call it characters, it's probably not the right word, but recurring, let's see if I can make it sound fancy art talk, recurring visual themes. Ooh, that show up good. in your work of for someone someone with a sheet over their head like a ghost or a litho stone or something like that and I think that's part of what makes your work feel consistent because I think if you were if you were mixing up 
you know, as you spoke to sort of random icons, it wouldn't necessarily maybe feel like that there is an underlying truth that you can get to. So even within a print, it has that. But then also, I think with the repeating visual themes, it also then feels like there's almost like a larger story at work throughout the years that you've been doing lithos in this style. Absolutely. And I and I think there's something like about that that's always interested me where um, the idea of like studio narrative, because I think it's so intimidating to go in and start making work every day in your studio when you can't use the last thing as reference for something new. Mm. And then I also think that just because you draw something once doesn't mean you got it out of your system or narratively figured that thing out. Like the ghost in a sheet thing, I love using it and different forms of it because I think it's narratively interesting in a way where the ghost in the sheets is like catch-all metaphor. One, it's like campy and silly and can be funny depending on how you draw the shape or how it's moving. Two, based on how you draw it, it can be scary in the idea you have this person who's concealing themselves and standing somewhere, staring at someone in the composition. And three, it can actually be this thing where it's really sad because if you consider the idea of a ghost following someone around, obviously mm. it means someone who has passed and wants to spend time with the living or someone who they used to know or love or whatever. And then by vice versa, are you looking at the ghost perspective or is this the person who has lost somebody and imagines them following them around? Mm. And so I think there's so much, and I think that's what the core of my work is about, is that mix of something that can be funny and scary and sad at the same time, or can be like bright and whatever, I use bright colors and compositions to tell something, to tell a story that's maybe more sad or violent. Yeah. Kind of like Johnny Cash songs. Some of them sound really upbeat. Then you read the lyrics yeah. and you're like, oh, geez, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a a good transition into this feeling that's in your work of having a real sense of place in the United States. And I know you've written about the emptiness of the American landscape as it relates to your compositions and it's an interesting feeling for me you know part of it can be it feels American in the sense that there's maybe a wooden cutout of a guy wearing a cowboy hat and a star that's very very clearly American iconography but then emptiness and this is as we were talking about earlier I've done since I came back from living in Bangkok, which is an extremely densely populated city of 10 million people, and I've come back to the States and I've done these two cross-country road trips. And that vastness is terrifying <laughs> that you find when you're in the middle of Kansas and you're just driving and driving and there's this sort of nothingness. And that feels particularly American to me as well. And, and that scariness meets romanticism I feel like is present for me anyway in your work as well yeah yeah I feel like everyone's had that feeling like of driving across the country especially like in the midwest where you have these wide open areas I got it the most in like Kentucky and Tennessee like that little sense of like like melancholy when you're like pumping gas like in the middle of nowhere where you can feel the breeze you look around and you're at this gas station but like surrounding you is nothing but 
a landscape that looks like an Andrew Wyeth painting. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little like overwhelming and cool. And you only get that five minutes it takes while you're pumping gas to experience it. But also like, I mean, what I've always been so interested because I spent so much time driving between Knoxville and Calb, Illinois and Knoxville and St. Louis has been, you go through these long, beautiful stretches of road and see these small towns and everything. But the unifying thing is that you have these, the bright like primary colors of gas stations that always cut through that landscape which is actually really nice because, I don't know, you see the sunset and like turns that certain blue when the sun first goes down and then you have like quick trip. And if you can separate yourself from seeing it as like this interruption of nature and like see it as being a part of nature, it ends up being this campy, cool thing, or at least something that I'm like visually really interested in. Mm, yeah. yeah. In your work, when you see the different icons appear again, do they always mean the same thing? Like, is the gas can or the Mondrian or the cowboy cutout? If someone was looking at your body of work or writing the exhibition text for your retrospective, could they say that this, for you, and obviously I think the meaning of art is often created in that relationship between the, the viewer and the piece and the artist and the piece, but for you as the creator, does it have the same meaning when it shows up in different works? I think so. And I, I think there's like a few examples. One of them, the tamarind will be put around in the corner. You'll have like a lithostone. And I think it's always been a symbol of like whatever has happening in the narrative. That's the thing that I would so much rather be doing or the character would so much rather be experiencing than like the current that they're in. The other one I think is the wooden cowboy has a changing meaning, but always sort of represents the same thing where it's like something that looks real, but isn't which I think is a recurring theme where you have statues of somebody or statues of a thing in the work looking at somebody who isn't a statue or I guess the better fit manifestation. There's all a lot of, I draw a lot of geese looking at whirly gigs that are look like geese mm-hmm. and just like weird dumbed down uncanny valley thing where it's like, you look like me, but you're not me or you're not real. So I, I like, Yeah. I think so. I think that the context changes meanings of a lot of things, though. And they almost have, like, forced to serve, like, a narrative purpose. I, yeah, maybe it's just, like, the meandering answer of this is the at the end of it. It's like, maybe not. I think it depends on the situation. Because in one of the prints, like, the cowboy figure is supposed to be, like, a piece of a broken billboard that got hit by a tornado, landed in the field next to another piece of broken billboard, and... The two billboards in the story I'd written for it were in love with each other, but couldn't be together. But because of this tornado, they're now in the same field and can like interact. And then along the bottom of the composition, there's like a really bare bones history of Western art where you have like the Venus of Willendorf and the Venus de Milo and then the Mondrian painting, which is just yeah, man, I have no idea. I guess not. I guess they all mean something different no matter where they are. <laughs> so in the time we have left, can you let me know what you're looking forward to? We're going to be releasing this pretty soon. So besides being in 5x5 five five in Prince Santa Fe, anything mm-hmm. else you want people to know? Yeah, well, we're still in the very early stages of figuring this out. But JT and I have been trying to figure out this print event that's going to happen twice a year. And we're going to start it in Kansas City. 
in late May, early June. And it's going to be a big showcase of printmakers and like printing and music. And then we're going to do it again, ideally in New York for print week. And it's going to be called scene double. And I think that's all we really have so far. We're like looking at a space and we're going to start inviting artists soon. So that's the graphic house next thing. For my personal stuff, I'm starting a new body of work. We just, I just set up a plate litho at graphic house and I'm finishing the newest print of that today. And so hopefully that'll be in some shows and people will see it. So that's what's on the immediate horizon. That's really exciting. I look forward to hearing more about the events, seeing double perfect title, no notes. I love it. And yeah, definitely let me know if I can help in any way with any of that. I'm always, always keen to collaborate or help promote or make new print things happen in the world. And I just, I love it. I think print events are the most fun events and also so good for the community and the education just generally about printmaking, get young people excited about it. So that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Hell yeah. And then where can people find you and follow you and see your work and all of that? Oh, you can follow me at at Stag Print and my website, EmmettMerrill.com that I think needs some updating, but should be working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I feel like if I had a nickel for every time an artist told me their website, <laughs> then it was like, it needs updating. <laughs> I think everybody gets it. It's, it's maybe one of the least favorite things of artists about being artists is updating their website, but you definitely have got some good work up there if people want to get a sense of it. Awesome. Yeah. Instagram is so much easier because it's just so direct and you're like, okay, I made a thing here. And then the website involves editing and yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, I will put links to those in the show notes for this episode. And thank you so much. This has been really fun. I'm glad we finally got to talk and I'm really excited to follow all your projects coming up. Awesome. Thank you for having me. This has been great. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very best way you can support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Haley Takahashi. We talk about her journey as an art history student turned artist, the particulars and complexities of drawing on ukiyo-e imagery as a Japanese-American artist, her long-standing self-portrait practice, and how this shows up in her current work. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.